Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, February 5th, 2015. here. It's going to be a busy day. Technically, I fly out of town for San Antonio today for the uh, Biblical Worldview Conference. So I have got today's program and tomorrow's to put together into one day. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We want you to open up your Bible and take a look at what it says in context to test, to see if what people are saying actually squares with God's word. Now, one of the recurring things I say here at Fighting for the Faith is don't take my word for it. I don't want you to listen to Fighting for the Faith with an open mind. I would prefer that you listen with an open Bible. That's the idea. And here's the other thing. is One of the things I've noticed, and uh, listeners of Fighting for the Faith have also noted this as well, is that when you warn people that they are being taught false doctrine, uh, oftentimes their reaction is going to basically be, you know, you're a gunky head, you're mean, you're divisive, you're the problem, right? And they stick their ear, uh, fingers in their ears and they go, la, 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 I can't hear you. Now, that's not a Christian way to do things. And what I mean by that is this, is that in Scripture, we see that not even the apostles, in particular the Apostle Paul, got a pass. They were sent by Christ. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent by Christ. They were sent to go and be witnesses of Jesus, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, the promise by the prophets, that he bled and died for our sins, and that we are to repent and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. They were sent with this message. And, uh, well, oftentimes that message is met with sharp, sharp opposition. And uh, and so the Apostle Paul, he was accused by the Pharisees of teaching falsely, of teaching about the false Messiah, Jesus. But he wasn't teaching falsehood, he was teaching the truth. And so there was lots of um, controversy, if you would, in Paul's preaching and teaching. And so in Acts chapter 17, let me give you an example of... Uh, how this works, and how the Apostle Paul was not given a pass by a particular church. And so here's the idea, is is that, you know, like the Apostle Paul, although I am not an apostle, um, you know, I would say 
don't take my word for it and be a good Berean. But let's take a look at the context of this. Acts chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so three Saturdays in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Okay, So what did he do? He opened up God's Word, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ or the Messiah to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Or you can say, is the Messiah. Messiah and Meshiach and uh, Christos, they're synonymous words. He's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, you know, people were brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They were told that Christ bled and died for them, as the prophets foretold, right? And so God's word doing its work on them, they 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 come to faith in Christ. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So, yeah, notice, no good deed goes unpunished. The apostle Paul, in order to escape with his life, had to slink out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night. And uh, he and Silas, they went to Berea. Let's hear what happened there. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Mm-hmm. Many of them therefore believed, not with a few, uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So here's the idea. Okay. I'm here proclaiming to you a message, a message that Christ has bled and died for you, and also saying that what many people are being taught, maybe you are being taught in your church regarding Jesus and regarding sound doctrine and what the Bible says, may not actually be true. You may be being taught false doctrine. And so I'm not asking you to take my word for it, but what I'm asking you to do is open up your Bible and do what the Bereans did to see if what I'm saying is true. Look into the scriptures yourselves. And scripture says of the Bereans that they had a noble character when they did this. Not that they were being divisive. They were not. Not that they were being gunky heads and they just needed to submit and be quiet. No, no, no. It says that they had a more noble character and that they tested to see if what the Apostle Paul, somebody who far outranks me in, in, uh, in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus when he was on his way there to kill Christians and round them up and arrest them, right? And uh, this is the man who you know set the world on fire, if you would, by going and proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And it says of the Bereans that they had a noble character because they tested to see if the things he were saying that he was saying were so. So test to see if what I'm saying is true. If if 
the warnings that I am giving regarding false teaching, false doctrine, Bible twisting, narcissistic eisegesis, whether or not what I'm saying is accurate, it's true. Don't listen with an open mind. Listen with an open Bible and see for yourself. And over and again, we find that people who will take that challenge, so to speak, they find that what I'm saying and what I'm warning against is true. And so just something to keep in mind. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We have a few things we need to do in hour number one, and I think we'll have time to get to all of them. We're going to begin with a, <clears throat> a William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update. And I got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, I I mean, I thought for sure that uh, with that Katy Perry Super Bowl extravaganza, it, and clearly all of the Illuminati symbols that were present. By the way, I think they were, there were uh, in, uh, in Katy Perry's uh, <clears throat> Super Bowl uh, halftime show. I'm surprised he hasn't yet chimed in on it. Instead, the, um, the video he just released yesterday is uh, talking about the Illuminati trying to communicate to us through the latest iPad commercial. And this is the second video he's done on that. So we'll check in with William Tapley to see what he's up uh, up with. Then we'll switch gears. We'll switch gears. And what we're going to listen to is uh, Katie Sousa and uh, Patricia King talking about soul decrees. And this is an important segment because it's not quite as loony. It's not so far out there on the lunatic fringe that we've heard Patricia King and Katie Sousa before. But this is an example of bad hermeneutics not sound exegesis, and somebody who is misusing an important tool, namely uh, Strong's uh, Concordance. And so we'll, we'll talk about that, Strong's Concordance and Lexicon, talk about how they're misusing that, and then as a result of it, the doctrine they're teaching is not sound. We'll take a break. We come back from the break. We're going to read a couple of emails. We have some emails that I want to get to, and we'll end off hour number one with a Perry Noble Leadership Podcast update. And... Uh, talking about the uh, in-between times or in the meanwhile. Uh, it's kind of an interesting podcast. And it, in, the reason I'm pointing it out is because, well, Perry Noble, like true seeker-driven vision-casting leaders, notice I didn't say he was a pastor, uh, uh, he you know, references the book of Nehemiah and somehow sees in that a parallel to his own life as a vision-casting leader, which is a common thing that seeker-driven leaders are taught to do. And it's a misuse of the book of Nehemiah, by the way. And then in hour number two, we're going to review a sermon from a church we have never reviewed a sermon before from. And it's from Calvary Christian Church. And they are in Mount Louisa in Queensland in Australia. The uh, person that we will be listening to is, I believe his name is uh, James McPherson. And he's the vision casting leader at Calvary Christian Church out there in Queensland. And, uh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is quite the butchering of Scripture. And uh, I'll, I'll kind of save it for hour number two, but I'll give you a hint. What he's going to basically do is find all kinds of faults in uh, Noah where there is no fault because this guy doesn't know how to rightly handle God's Word. It's quite the, um, quite the Bible twist. And the sermon we'll be listening to, I think, is entitled uh, Living Large. This is part three in his Living Large sermon series. So that will round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since we're beginning with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times Update, that requires us to do this. (laughs) 
coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. Rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right, that's Doom and Gloom coming soon, written by Third Eagle himself and uh, and performed by him. Mad Casio skills there. Now, uh, what we're going to be listening to is uh, the most recent video posted by William Tapley entitled uh, iPad Ad Prince William is the Antichrist. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Um, <laughs> anyway... Uh, this is the second video of his analysis, prophetic analysis, apparently, of the uh, latest iPad commercial. And again, I, I got to tell you, disappointed, totally disappointed. Um, the, uh, I would have thought by now he would have some prophetic insight and analysis of Katy Perry's performance. But I'm sure it's forthcoming. It just seems like it's right up his alley. But uh, here's William Tapley to explain to us some of the prophetic significance of the latest iPad commercial. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I am your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. This will be part two in my series on that new iPad commercial called Changes in the Air. And I have discovered another amazing feature of this commercial, and that is that the Illuminati, who undoubtedly made this commercial, try to tell us that Prince William is their candidate for the Antichrist. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you always love it when somebody plays the game that I call Pin the Tail on the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, from time to time I tell the story about how uh, when I was a younger guy and I lived in Seattle, I worked at a bank in downtown Seattle called Pacific Northwest Bank. And uh, no joke, we had a Vietnam veteran who would come in from time to time. And I, I remember this very distinctly because it was one of the most bizarre conversations I'd ever had with anybody. And, uh, you know, he was cashing his uh, monthly disability check and <laughs> proceeded to ask me if if it was true whether or not I thought that Nancy Reagan was the Antichrist. And you see, yeah. Um... <laughs> oh, man. Now, before you think that William Tapley is actually thinking that Will- <laughs> that William Prince William is the Antichrist. Well, let me dispel that myth right now. He does not believe that. In fact, the very next thing he says makes it clear that he doesn't believe that Prince William is the Antichrist. And that is nonsense. Now, I actually agree with William Tapley here. Yeah, when you read the biblical description of the man of lawlessness from uh, the book of, I think, Second Thessalonians, it's clear that this is a religious leader. Yeah, in fact, let me pull this up because I think it behooves us to review this again. Second Thessalonians, I believe it's in chapter two. 
Yeah, here it is. Uh, Let me read, uh, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to have come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, that's the apostasy, uh, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. This guy is a a religious political leader, one who exalts himself as God, right? Uh, So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, and I believe very strongly, along with many of the reformers and other Christians through the millennia, that the temple of God being referred to there is the visible church, because Paul is not going to be pointing to the temple, which has already served its purpose, uh, you know, in typologically pointing us to Jesus and, you know, and his sacrifice on the cross. Now, post-cross, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, where's the temple of God? And you find this in Paul's theology throughout the epistles. He refers to the temple of God as the Christians. So, so this is a religious leader who comes up through Christianity who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called object of worship, proclaiming himself to be God. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I mean, Prince William is the Illuminati's candidate for the Antichrist. Just doesn't seem to be the kind, <laughs> doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who exalts himself to uh, claiming to be God. Yeah. We continue... Don't you evil one-world government people realize you do not get to choose your leader? (laughs) So William Tafley here is speaking to the Illuminati as if the Illuminati are the ones who are behind the iPad commercial sending secret eschatological messages. Oh, this is just great. In Daniel 4.17, Almighty God says... I will appoint the basest man over them. Almighty God will choose the Antichrist and not you Illuminati people. And there are many other descriptions of the Antichrist in Scripture. For example, you Illuminati people. Oh, Isaiah says that he will be the Assyrian. Daniel says he comes from the Roman Empire. In fact, Daniel pinpoints the location of where the Antichrist comes from, and that is Istanbul, Turkey. Prince William does not fulfill these prophecies. I agree. <laughs> totally agree. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I think we get the point. Uh, again, we uh, point out William Tapley for several reasons. One, he's the poster boy for what we call great commission creep here at Fighting for the Faith, somebody who's not actually making disciples of all nations, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. No, no. <laughs> but also giving an example of you know what it looks like when somebody has literally cooked their brain on eschatological code cracking. Um, yeah, and the thing is is that William Tapley doesn't have any chops, but there's other guys out there who have better chops than William Tapley, 
but they're just as off topic and uh, and loony as he is. It's just it's easier to spot with him than when we get to the, the the guys who are really popular in the visible church who are doing the same thing as William Tapley. It becomes a lot easier to spot them. Okay, moving along. So, uh, have you heard of soul decrees? Yeah, neither have I until uh, this uh, latest episode of um, Patricia King's television program uh, where she interviews Katie Sousa to talk about soul decrees. And this is an example, by the way, of misusing the Strong's uh, Greek lexicon concordance thingy uh, that many people uh, uh, look to. So this is an example of somebody basically trying to say that the Greek says something, making an appeal to the original languages without actually knowing the uh, biblical languages and how they work. So you have to be careful in how you use Strong's uh, concordance and uh, you know, especially the Greek uh, you know, lexicon portion of it. But uh, here's Patricia King to set up her conversation with Katie Sousa, and we'll uh, demonstrate what's going wrong along the way. Here we go. The Lord wants you in every respect of your life to prosper and be in health, but it's... Yeah, as soon as somebody starts a, a sermon or a television program off with a statement like that, you know you are immediately dealing with false doctrine. Jesus says to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He said to expect persecution and suffering in this life. And then you look at the lives of the apostles. What did they suffer? They suffered greatly um, for proclaiming the gospel. In fact, there's a particular passage I would point people to, and I've pointed people to this in the past, that talks about, uh, you know, basically Paul talking about what he experienced. And I would say that uh, the apostle Paul was not somebody sinful who didn't write, who didn't know how to... Uh, apply the Bible correctly, but listen to what he s- says um, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. I'll start halfway through uh, verse twenty-one, and I'll start at verse twenty-one at the beginning. Of, to my shame, I must say that we are too weak for that. He's talking, you know, kind of comparing himself to the super apostles. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? These are the super apostles. Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches." Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Well, if God wants to prosper you in all ways, right? Well, what was going on with the Apostle Paul, man? I mean, this guy sounds like he had a life of tribulation and hardship, uh, especially after becoming a Christian, and eventually he lost his head. Yeah, and Nero had him beheaded. So, um, yeah, when somebody starts off by saying, God wants to prosper you in all areas of your life, you know this for a fact. That sentence is not what Scripture teaches. Therefore, the person you're dealing with is a false teacher and a wolf. We continue. 
It's as your soul prospers. And so that means he wants your soul to be whole. He wants your mind, your will, your emotions, your, your uh, faculties of passion and that just to be aligned with him. And so today we have a guest that is an expert in this field. It's mm. Katie Sousa from Expected End Ministries. Mm-hmm. To say Katie Sousa is an expert regarding anything that has to do with God's word yeah. Where did she study uh, again? Which seminary did she go through? Does she have a PhD in biblical whatever? Yeah, I don't think so. Katie, you've been um, studying into this area of the soul and healing yeah. for the soul for a long time now, but not yeah. only studying. Now, notice she says she's studying. Now, listen, you don't have to be a PhD to study God's word and get it correctly. But if you're going to study God's word and you're not trained in the biblical languages, it's it's best if you learn how to properly use those tools that help people who don't know biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew so that you don't misuse them the way Katie Sousa does. The fact that what you're going to hear here proves she doesn't know how to use these tools rightly, and instead she makes some very simple mistakes that lead to very tragic errors in her theology. We continue actually been applying with your faith yes. the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, his healing blessing, his, his deliverance power, and people are set free all over the world yeah. because of your ministry. And so we're just thrilled to have you uh, with us today on the program. And I know that you've got lots of good nuggets for us. So let's yeah. talk about the healing of the soul. Why is it important? Well, for me, it started out as necessity of me getting this revelation because I was getting sick with all kinds of things, reoccurring issues that would never go away, bladder infections, yeast infections, sore throats, flus, fevers. And it seemed like I was doing what I was supposed to do. You know, I was praying, believing, decreeing, and I wasn't getting the breakthrough. And so I knew there was something missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be called sound doctrine. Where in Scripture does it say to declare and decree things and somehow that will get rid of whatever is ailing you? It doesn't. God's Word doesn't teach this. So already, you know, (laughs) strike two. Two strikes so far. I mean, we're just minutes, you know, into this uh, video. So notice her presupposition is totally wrong that, you know, she was experiencing, you know, health issues of, you know, and she describes some of her symptoms and her solution was to decree and declare and she didn't experience breakthrough. Well, what's the reason for that? I didn't understand what it was. And that's when God began to, you know, speak to me through that. Mm -hmm. So you had direct revelation from God speaking to you. What did he say? that will prosper and be in health even as our soul prospers. And God began to show me how certain things like sin and trauma can wound our souls. Right. You know, Isaiah 30, 26 in the Amplified talks about God healing up the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds Wounds. that came from their sin. Now notice, what translation, and you have to kind of put it in quotes, was she referencing? The answer is the Amplified Bible, which, by the way, is a Bible you want to avoid like the plague. And here's the reason why. is because what the Amplified does is it takes, you know, all of the different possible definitions of a word and pours all of those meanings into a word every time it appears. And this is not how language works. In fact, uh, let me give you an example with the word up. Let me give you some of the dictionary definitions of the word up. Up can be to, toward, or in a more elevated position. That's one definition of up. Up also can mean out of bed, as in the sentence, get up. 
Okay, it can mean above the horizon. The moon came up, or you can, uh, or it you, you can, it means to travel north. We went up to Sacramento. Okay, this is an example of different definitions of the word up. But when a word when the word up appears in a sentence, it doesn't mean all of those things. It only means one of those definitions. So the problem with the so-called amplified is that it pours every defin- possible definition of a word into a word, and it's, it's the, uh, the, the error is called illegitimate totality transfer. And the amplified is the, is the poster child for this error. And so when you're reading a passage, supposedly the amplified is trying to give you a, a more amplified, you know, a broader understanding, a deeper understanding of what a word means, but in reality it's not doing that. In reality what it's doing is just taking all of the potential uh, definitions and pouring them all into the word. Now, one of the ways in which you can know you have the right definition of a word when it shows up is to basically take the definition and replace the defin- replace the word as it appears in the sentence with the definition. If the definition works in that sentence, most likely you have the correct definition for how that word is to be understand, understood in that sentence, in that context. So let me give you an example. If I were to give you the, go back to the sentence, the sentence is, I traveled up to Sacramento. Okay, And so what is the, the question is, what does the word up mean in that sentence? I traveled up to Sacramento. Well, you know, one of the definitions of the word up is out of bed. So let's replace the word up with the word out of bed. I traveled out of bed to Sacramento. No, see, the sentence doesn't work. So you kind of get how that works. But if, you know, the other definition is, you know, of up here means to travel north. Well, let me, tr- let me, ch- you know, take the word up and replace it with the, with the, the definition, see if it works. I traveled north to Sacramento. Does that work? The answer is yes, that works. But both of them can't work at the same time. So somebody who is studying God's word using the Amplified, this is uh, like the, the go-to Bible in the word of faith heresy. And they think that they're getting a deeper understanding of God's word. They're not. All they're doing, all, all they're experiencing in the Amplified is this illegitimate totality transfer where it's wrongly pouring every possible definition into a word when it appears. And that's not a way to understand correctly what God's word is saying. It's a way to be deceived. So we continue. So saying that when we sin or when somebody sins against us or ancestors sin, it can literally wound us, okay? And even like for trauma, that traumas that we live through, divorces, losing jobs, our children, uh, maybe someone passes away in our Mm -hmm. life, those traumas can also wound our soul, man, you know? Yeah, so that wounding of our soul, man, is based upon the amplified Bible in that passage in Isaiah which means it's not what that passage really means. An example of that in the Bible is Job. Right. Remember, he went through a lot of trauma. Right. He had all his servants killed and all his, his wealth was stolen. His children were all killed right. at the same time when a whirlwind you know, crashed the house down on, mm-hmm. on them. And then he himself even got sick physically. Well, those traumas wounded his soul. And we know that because throughout the entire book of Job, 23 times he says stuff about his soul, like, I'm mourning in soul, I'm vexed in soul, my soul's being poured out. Right. And it was always him. Yeah, no, notice. So what she does is she starts with the amplified 
incorrectly understands a passage from Isaiah from the Amplified and then goes looking throughout the uh, the rest of the Bible, in particular here she went to the book of Job, to find supporting evidence that somehow fits this you know, this insight that she received from the Amplified Version, and she's not rightly understanding the book of Job at all. These statements in connection right. to the pain, the right. soul pain he was feeling over those traumas. And you know, Katie, if... If your soul is in that much pain, it's going to affect your quality of life in the same way that if your body like has an injury, like let's say someone, you know, cut your, your arm yes. and, and, you know, your tendons are all damaged and everything else, then that arm's not going to function right and you're not sure. going to have quality of life. So we can't ignore this area of soul no. healing in the same way as we wouldn't be able to ignore the need for a physical healing. Yeah, and even doctors will say that when you've lived through a traumatic event or something has stressed you and your inner man, they don't even really necessarily call it right. the soul, but they say that 80 to 90% of their patients that have a serious, even a deadly illness, right. have suffered some sort of a event like that that right. has been traumatizing to them. So what happens in here directly affects everything out mm-hmm. here, including the physical body. Right. And, and yet everything that she's saying is built off of a false foundation from a wrong reading from a passage in Isaiah using the Amplified. Interesting. And yet she said, oh, the Lord is the one who revealed this to her. Uh-huh. As we go around teaching people how to get healed in their soul, we see thousands and thousands of miracles. I mean, I saw a man grow a lung back right. that he lost from cancer. Yeah, I'd like to see the medical records on that, the before and after. I mean, don't you think that if somebody had you know, lost a lung you know, to cancer, that it was taken out of their body and then it regrew? That, that that would be like all over the news. Man regrows lung. No kidding. Here's the proof. You know, this is the before and after MRI, right? So that's the other thing you'll notice is, is that these people who are claiming these healings all the time and claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God, they spin all these yarns out about people being healed as if it's like no big deal. It's an everyday occurrence. It's thousands of people. Why did I regrow a lung and stuff like that? Then when you press them for medical records to verify this miracle took to, you know actually took place well uh you don't ever know the name of the person uh you can't somehow reach him nope nothing of the sort um yeah the uh, medical verification for these claims always seems to come up lacking or they, it turns out to be non-existent because when you push them they never are able to produce it so she's pulling a fast one this is a con and uh we continue he wow. got his soul healed. Wow. And I believe the soul, the wound that was inside him actually caused the cancer in the first place. Yeah. See, a, a good a good biblical example of sickness and the soul is the man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh-huh. Remember him? Uh, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with him. John chapter 5. Mm-hmm. Said he had an infirmity for 38 years. Right. That's a long time to be sick. And a lot of people are in that situation. Right, exactly. What Especially ma- today. Yes. There's so many mysterious illnesses. that. If- yeah, so many mysterious illnesses. Where do they possibly come from? Now, watch what she's going to do here. She's going to make an appeal to Strong's, although my copy of Strong's doesn't say what she says it says. Doctors don't know how to diagnose. Because they don't know how to diagnose the soul. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the issues. Right. Yeah, but Katie Seuss has figured out because the Lord showed her, you know. Man of the pool, 38 years, what was it that made him in that state for that long? Right. Well, the Bible says he had an infirmity for right. 38 years. Mm-hmm. If you look at that word infirmity in the Strong's, it means weakness and infirmity of the body 
and of the, the soul. soul. Now let's take a look at that one real quick here. I happen to have Strong's Enhanced Greek Lexicon. And uh, the, the number we're looking for in Strong's is word number 769, asthenia. Now notice that she used the word and. That's kind of the problem. Okay, we, We've already set this up that you know, a word can only mean one thing in a particular context. So, asthenia, here's what's given from Strong's, okay? Here's what it can be translated. Translates as infirmity, 17 times. Weakness, 5 times. Disease, once. Sickness, once. So, he, so it notice that it, Strong's points out the fact that it's translated different ways, different times in Scripture, notes how it's translated. And so definition number one is want of strength, weakness, infirmity of the body. It's native weakness and frailty, feebleness of health or sickness, or, now notice I said or, infirmity of the soul, want of strength and capacity requisite to understand a thing, to do things great and glorious, to restrain corrupt desires, and to bear trials and troubles. So it can mean an infirmity of the body or, not and, or it can be an infirmity of the soul, but it can't be both at the same time. So what Katie Sousa here, again, she's doing, this is called illegitimate totality transfer. And if you use Strong's to help you understand the underlying Greek text of uh, English translation, but you don't know Greek, you need to know that you can't take every definition and pour it into a word. That's not how language works. Instead, you are to understand what the word means in context. So the question is, in context, what does asthenia mean in John chapter 5, specifically John chapter 5, verse 5? Now, let me read to you from the ESV. We'll pull this up, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of work with some different translations just to take a look. So John chapter 5, I'll start at verse 1 in the ESV. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five, a five-roofed colonnade, and these... In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So the uh, ESV translates the Greek word asthenia as invalid, referring to a bodily ailment. And it's not bodily ailment and ailment or infirmity of the soul. No, that, that's not how the word works. Now let's take a look at what the NIV does with verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid. So the NIV from 1984 translates asthenia as invalid, referring to his physical body. Let's take a look at the NASB. The NASB in verse 5 uh, translates it as a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. So the, the NASB translates it as sickness, again, referring to a physical ailment. So you get the idea. They're all kind of capturing the physical aspect of it, but it can't be and infirmity of the soul. No, it's infirmity of the body that is being referred to. So what Katie Sousa is doing here, and she claims that God's the Holy Spirit has given her this insight, but this insight is based upon a misuse of language, and God the Holy Spirit would not do that. So again, Strong's is a great tool if you use it properly. You cannot pour every meaning of a, of a word into every instance that it appears. So let's listen a little bit more. 
So it was saying that he had a wound inside of his inner man that was causing the sickness. Now, where did that wound come from? Right. No, that's not what the text says at all. This is not sound biblical exegesis. You don't know Greek, and you don't know how to properly use Strong's as a tool. You're twisting God's word with it. It came from sin, and we know that from the words of Jesus himself. What did he say to that man after he got him healed? He, he saw him in the temple. He said, uh, I see you're well now. Stop sinning right. or something worse may happen to you. See, when we sin or someone sins against us or our right. ancestors sin, it can wound us and then cause disease. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so if somebody sins against you or you sin, which, by the way, you sin daily because uh, Christ taught us to pray daily, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is a daily prayer. So we've got a huge problem here. But that's you know, the kind of the idea. Yeah, again, you'll notice that this isn't far out there on the lunatic fringe, but the conclusions she's drawing are based upon a false understanding and a misuse of Strong's Concordance, which is a very typical thing to do. So if you're going to, you know, I do not recommend the Amplified at all. If you have a copy of that thing, get rid of it. And if you're going to use Strong's, you have to understand that it's just like a dictionary It'll tell you the possible definitions, but in any given t- context, only one of those definitions is the correct definition, not all of them, as if somehow that sheds all this light. So, yeah, you got to be very careful how you use Strong's, especially if you're not trained in how to understand and read the biblical languages. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, do a little bit of email and then a Perry Noble update. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off... In Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. 
You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. How should Christians deal with false teaching in their midst? What should we do when our doctrine and our practice do not sync? What role does humor and satire play in calling out false teachings? These are the timely questions for the 2015 Brothers of John the Steadfast Conference, February 20th and 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Hear from pastors Brian Wolfmiller, Clint Poppy, Larry Bean, Hans Feeney, and Todd Wilkin as they address the theme, When Heterodoxy Hits Home. Also, don't miss out on the No Pietists Allowed parties, the Manly Man Breakfast, and Worship to Feed the Soul. To find out more and to register for When Heterodoxy Hits Home, go to Brothers of John the Steadfast at steadfastlutherans.org. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite Bible twisters who appeal to the Amplified and Strong's Concordance and don't know what they're doing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along, time for some email.
enough of that. So uh, we're going to – we have uh, four emails that we're going to cover today. And just a reminder, if you're going to send me a question that you would like me to answer on the air, it's important that you tell me where you're from because if you don't tell me where you're from, I'm going to invent a place somewhere on the planet where uh, where I think you might be from. <laughs> and I have – there's no logic to me picking where you're from. So uh, name and city uh, or name and part of the world that you're in so that uh, we can put that on the air. So our first email comes to us from Joshua, and Joshua did not tell us where he was from. So uh, Joshua today is from Guatemala City. Here's uh, what he said. He says, uh, uh, Pastor Rosebro, I'm considering joining the military, but I want to make sure that it's God's will for my life. How can I absolutely know God's will for my life? I would hate to join only to find out that God did not want me to be in the military. Thank you. Well, Joshua, there's an assumption here that's incorrect. And uh, let, let's talk about your assumption. Your assumption is, is that somehow God is up there and he's got this perfect will for you to do, right? And uh, and so your job is to somehow figure out the tea leaves and, and read the mind of God so that you don't make a misstep. That's not how this works at all. In fact... Um, the decisions that you make, this decision you make is actually your decision to make. And so, you know, if you want to know whether or not you should join the military, sit down and ask yourself a few questions. Number one, being in the military is a fine vocation. That is an absolutely godly vocation. Um, and the military oftentimes becomes the uh, you know, the extension of the government. The, God, the government's role is to punish evildoers and to protect those who are its citizens. So that's a perfectly legit, good, and godly vocation. And if you choose to do this, I would recommend that you do it to the best of your ability, doing it as if you know your, your, your master is Christ and not the, the, the guys over you. Because oftentimes in the military, the guys over you, uh, they can be jerks. It just so happens that way, although you might have a, you know, decent officers over you and things like that. But uh, remember, Jesus is your commander in chief, not, you know, not anybody else. Although, you know, you know, in the physical, yeah, it would be the president of the United States. That's, of course, <clears throat> assuming that you're not really in Guatemala City. So, it, number one, it's a good vocation. So sit down and ask yourself some questions. What's the reason why you want to go into the military? Is it to serve your neighbor? Um, that's you know a good reason. Is it because um, you believe that you you know it's your duty to serve your country? That's a good reason. Uh, will this further your career plans for your life? Maybe the reason why you feel like you need to go into the military is because you know your family doesn't have lots of uh, financial means, and uh, going into the military and serving your country for a, f- a certain amount of time enables you to um, to uh, access a GI bill where you can go to college. That is another good reason to serve in the military. Um, and so, you know, if these things make sense and, you know, then sit there and understand this, this is your decision to make. And so it's not as if you, ch- if you choose to go in the military, you know, that somehow if that was God's perfect will, now you're off track. Or if you decide to go into the military and God did not want you to do that now, now you, you know, how was God going to get you to where? No, 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 no. See, the thing is, is that. God has put this decision in your hands to make. So make a godly decision. That's the way to do this. Next question comes to us from Chris in Blacksburg, South Carolina. And here he writes, he says, Chris, my question is, do you think that prosperity preachers are only preaching the things they do for shameful gain, or do you think that there are they are just confused and misguided? Now, the, the, you know, I understand the reason you asked this, and uh, we'll kind of get to that. I do believe that there are some people who are prosperity preachers who know that they are doing what they're doing in order to teach for shameful gain things they ought not to teach. 
That being the case, there are some people who grow up under the false teaching of prosperity preachers who legitimately falsely believe that that's true Christianity and true biblical doctrine because they grew up under it. Um, and uh, the problem is, is that that doesn't let them off the hook. And so, you know, whether their motives are because they truly believe this is the truth or whether or not they are pulling the wool over people's eyes, it doesn't change the fact that what they're teaching is rank heresy and is not in accord with the truth. And so, you know, there are people out there, you know, and some people point to Joel Osteen as an example, a guy who grew up in the word of faith heresy who kind of comes by it legitimately, but that doesn't let him off the hook. It kind of doesn't really matter in the end now, does it? Because false doctrine, whether it's taught from so-called good motives or bad motives, still sends people to hell and is still dangerous. So, yeah, keep that in mind. Now, as for Joel Osteen, well, you know, he practices what he preaches regarding prosperity, and uh, that is a problem. Next question comes to us from Philip, and Philip didn't tell me where he was from, so uh, Philip is from Kathmandu. Here's what he says. Um, Chris, if you were to run into uh, a person from the seeker-driven uh, uh, church, Life Church, what question would you ask them to start, the, to start them to question about what their church is all about? I'm addressing uh, the believer that is uh, part of the church. Okay, so um, Philip, here's the idea. If you have limited time, and you know it's kind of a, it's going to be one conversation. What you want to do is is spend some time in the scripture and challenge them, and and say something to the effect of, "Listen, I've listened to many of the sermons from Craig Rochelle, and I'm concerned. And you're you need to have a good reason for your concern. And you know, and I, I think a good place to start would be, listen, Jesus says in the Gospel of John." You know, to the to the Jews, you diligently search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. Yet they, these these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And so, point out the fact that scripture really is about Jesus, and then give examples that you've listened to from Craig Rochelle's sermons, where he twists and hijacks God's word and doesn't make it about Jesus, but makes it about you. He's another one of these guys who's into narcissistic eisegesis, and say, I'm very troubled with that. So, if you can have examples that you can give and show where a, a passage is clearly pointing us to Jesus. And, you know, and stuff like that. The idea is, is that you, when you ask a question, you want to back it up with the word of God, because here's the idea. It's not your questions that God sends out that don't return to him void. It's his word that is goes out and doesn't return to him void. So you want to help open their eyes with the scriptures. And so the idea there is be prepared to demonstrate from scripture where Craig Rochelle has mishandled the text and show them what that text really looks like and what it means in context, and start to create doubt in their mind that Craig Rochelle is rightly handling God's word and teaching it correctly, because that and with and you have to use God's word to do that. Don't throw your opinions out there. Dem- be, take the time to patiently walk them through and demonstrate it from Scripture and from examples, similar to what I do here at Fighting for the Faith. And before you have that conversation, spend some time prayer in prayer. And also, I would strongly recommend fasting because understand this. When people's eyes are open, that is a work of God the Holy Spirit. And so we need to go into it humbly, knowing that we are not the ones opening their eyes. It's God who is opening their eyes through his word that he's put into our mouth. So I think you have to keep that in mind. Next question comes to us from Forrest in Eugene, Oregon. And um, here's what he says. Um, uh, our pastor, you know, it's, uh, this is uh, for, uh, Eugene's, oh, sorry, for, Forrest's uh, pastor in Eugene, Oregon, 
uh, listed several denominations that he claimed were uh, were false Christian doctrines, as in denominations that denied one of the essential Christian uh, Christian faiths. So, which are listed below. So, uh, you know, so Forrest's uh, pastor has listed that you know there are people out there who are falsely Christians because they deny some of the essentials of the Christian faith. And here are the essentials that his pastor listed. Number one, inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Two, the Trinity. Uh, three, the full deity and humanity of Christ. Four, humans are sinful, fallen, guilty, and helpless to get right with God on their own. Five, uh, the works of Christ. A virgin birth, sinless perfection, sacrificial, sin-paying death, victorious life, giving resurrection, future return of Christ to judge the world and reign forever. Uh, six, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, eternal heaven and eternal hell, which, by the way, for us, that is a great list. I think that is a good list, uh, you know, kind of a standard, you know, list that you look at of the essentials of the Christian faith, where if you're denying these or teaching contrary to these, um, yeah, yeah, chant, you're a heretic, not, not somebody who's just an error. And I agree with your pastor. But here's what he says. He says, my pastor listed Lutherans as denying one or more of these essential doctrines, which, by the way, is patently false, if by Lutherans you mean confessional Lutherans. And here's where the rub is, um, that within the visible church, the deno- there's a denominational umbrella called Lutheran. And the problem is underneath that umbrella, there are rank heretics. I would point people to, you know, the pastors and leadership of the ELCA, okay? And the ELCA does deny some of these essential doctrines. And they, they have bought into modernity or post-modernity and have embraced liberalism. And they're kind of guilty of uh, the Socinian heresy in that sense. And so, uh, and unfortunately, they keep the name Lutheran. And so the problem is, is that they mess everything up for us. I like to refer to them as Lutherans in name only. And uh, you'll often hear me refer to Orthodox Lutherans as confessional Lutherans. Confessional Lutherans do not deny any of the things listed on this list that your pastor listed. In fact, they quite <laughs> quite boldly proclaim and defend all of the things on that list. So it's, it's incorrect and, and painting with too broad of a brush to say that Lutherans deny one or more of these essential doctrines. Liberal Lutherans do, not confessional Lutherans. And so, and and you also noted the fact that you know there there may be some confusion there regarding the Lutheran doctrine of baptism and whether or not the Lutheran doctrine of baptism somehow is a denial of uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone, as if somehow baptism, you know, what the Lutherans believe regarding baptism is a work. Well, that's actually not true. It's well, it is a work, but it's God's work, not ours. And so, what I would point you to there is the August sixth, twenty thirteen episode of Fighting for the Faith. The name of it is The Biblical Case for the Lutheran Doctrine of Baptism. And uh, in there, I you know take on a, a challenger, if you would, by the name of Matt Haney. And there's a PDF document in there uh, that you can click and download in that episode. So go to the August 6th, 2013 episode of Fighting for the Faith. It's entitled The Biblical Case for the Lutheran Doctrine of Baptism. And work your way through that, and you'll see that Lutherans do not teach, uh, teach that uh, baptism is our work that we do in order to be saved. That's absolutely a patently false way of looking at it. Uh, in fact, that's not what Lutherans teach at all. So hopefully that answers your questions. And uh, since we are running a little bit long, we're going to we need to move along. And here's our next segment. Time for a Perry Noble update. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. 
What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. All right, yeah, that's uh, from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. That's our Perry Noble update music. Now, what we're going to be listening to is the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. And fascinating episode um, because it shows kind of uh, once again, and we've covered this before in the past in Fighting for the Faith, and we'll probably cover it many more times, um, how seeker-driven vision-casting leaders, notice I didn't say pastor, how seeker-driven vision-casting leaders misuse the book of Nehemiah. And uh, so the name of the episode is What Do You Do in the Quote-Unquote Meantime? We won't listen to the whole thing, and uh, but here we go. Welcome to the February edition of the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. Woo-hoo! My name is Stacey and I'll be filling in for Shane and I'm so excited about today's topic as we are getting to talk about the meantime. G'day, mate. <laughs> I'm sure if you're listening right now, you probably realize that wasn't Shane. Shane is uh, not with us today, but he'll be back next month. And Stacey from Australia is hosting this podcast. And the main reason we ask her to host this podcast, other than she's an awesome person, it's because Australians have cool accents. That's so right. if you're if you're in Australia right now listening to this podcast, hit me up with a hashtag I love Stacy. Hashtag oh. I love Stacy. And I'll send you a free copy of Unleash and Overwhelm signed. All right. Go Stacy. That's awesome. As we kick into today, um, I'm sure most of those listening know or have experienced a meantime, whether that's in a ministry setting and they're believing for a vision and that's yet to be fulfilled, or a personal one and they're waiting on Now notice what they said. Waiting for a vision that has yet to be fulfilled. One of the major ideas behind vision casting leaders is that they believe that God has uniquely given them a special direct revelation for planting a church, uh, to do church a particular way for the unchurched and stuff like that. Nowhere in Scripture ever does it say that pastors are to receive direct visions from God and and uh, you know in order to plant a church a particular way or whatever like this the whole premise of the seeker driven movement is built on a false doctrine and a false leadership model this is not the leadership model revealed in scripture for Christ's church on you know their spouse to come along or maybe a couple waiting on having a child so i think perry as we enter 2015 with these renewed passions and dreams and and hopes and callings um before they become a reality we're in this waiting period this meantime so if mm-hmm. we're going to be leaders that last and leaders who do all that god's called us to do we need to learn how to navigate ourselves and our teams through the meantime so mm, so we need to learn how to navigate our our team through the meantime the meantime would be well I got the vision from God, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, listen to the way Perry Noble describes this. In saying that, could you please define this phrase or this season of being in the meantime and what you believe it is? Being in the meantime. So it's kind of like um, when you're landing a plane and you know the plane's about to come in for a landing. Now, notice he's not making an appeal to Scripture. Well, in in this sense, well, Scripture teaches regarding vision casting. When you receive the vision, there's going to be this delay between the receiving of the vision and the fulfilling of the vision, and we call that the meantime. No, he's going to personal anecdotes, something that we can also... It's kind of like when you're in a holding pattern, when you're on an airplane. You can see the uh, runway, but you can't land yet. But you get put in a holding pattern. 
and I don't like holding patterns. No, no leader really enjoys them, but it's it's kind of like God's holding pattern for us. Mm, kind of like God's holding pattern for us. And where in the Bible does it teach this? So we're not quite landing yet. We can see the runway, but it's going to be a little while before we get there. And the frustrating thing about a holding pattern is you don't know how long a holding pattern is. For example, um, I knew people asked me, when did you know you were going to start New Spring Church? And the answer to that is the fall of 1996. And they're like, well, when did you start New Spring Church? And I said, the fall of 1999. So for three years, I was in this um, in the meantime thing. Yeah, so you received a vision from God in 96, but it didn't come to fruition until 1999, huh? And so it was, it was God clearly told me what I was going to do. And- mm, so God told you to do what you're doing at New Spring. Weird, because the things you're doing at New Spring are, are absolutely antithetical and contrary to what God's Word commands the church to be doing when it gathers. In 1996. But he didn't let me do it for three years. And, and the reason he does that, and I'm sure we'll get into this later on in the podcast, but the reason he does that is he allows us a time of preparation. Oh, so, the re- so you know the mind of God, right? So the reason why God gives you a vision and then it doesn't come to pass for several years is because, well, the reason is because God wants you to use that time as a season of preparation. Which biblical texts reveal this doctrine? Answer, there isn't one. This is not based on anything that God's Word reveals. Um, during that time, and he's preparing us because sometimes God calls us but doesn't release us because to do so wouldn't be a gift to us. It, it would be a, it, it'd be a curse. Yeah. And that's all speculation. There's no biblical text that teaches this. That's right. So for you, the purpose of the meantime, which I guess is moving on to the next question, the purpose of the meantime is mainly preparation. For some people, it's preparation. For some people, um, it's to learn discipline. Um, I lo- uh-huh. And again, which biblical text talks about this mean the meantime thing and why, why God does it? I, I love, love, love. As a, and I'm sure every leader, um, church leader listening to this podcast loves the book of Nehemiah. And it's just um, a great book on what happens when a leader um, dedicates to a vision. Um, uh, no, it's not. It is not an example of a leader who dedicates to a vision. This, this is patently false. And this is, by the way, Nehemiah has become kind of the go-to text that the seeker-driven leaders narcissize. That I mean that they narcissize. They see, you know, Nehemiah as a well, if you would, kind of an allegorical tale of a vision-casting leader and the opposition he faces from haters and things like that. But nowhere in Nehemiah does it say that Nehemiah received a vision from God. Nope, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll kind of get the flavor of what's going on as we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and part of Nehemiah chapter 2. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued 
And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now notice, it does not say, and, I, and then God gave me a vision. It doesn't say that. Listen to what he, what he prays. He said, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name to dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, notice here, this is a prayer of confession of sins, asking for God's mercy, and reminding God what is said in his word. God had made particular promises to the children of Israel that even if they had been scattered to the uttermost regions of the earth, And this is what happened because God punished Israel for their idolatry and their refusing to repent and to turn from their idolatry. So God sent them into exile, not all of them, but just a small remnant of them. The rest of them were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, murdered literally on the battlefield and in in the city. So here's the the remnant. He hears what's happening in Jerusalem. He has not returned to Jerusalem yet. Um, And yet the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that they would only be in exile for 70 years and, you know, and that God would be with them. They were to do particular things and that God would return them to the land and God was going to make good on his promises. And here Nehemiah is reminding God of what it is that God said in his word. This is what's going on and ticking here. So the so-called vision that Nehemiah gets is not a vision. It's a it's it's a vision, if you would, of him, him needing to repent of his sins, of his of his brothers and sisters of Israel to repent of their sins, and reminding God of his promises to return them to the land. So the story then continues. Now I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes. When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass until, through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I ask, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay, so that's how the story begins. No mention of a vision that he's given or this, you know, in the meanwhile time. No, he reminds God of what his word says regarding the children of Israel. He prays for mercy and forgiveness and even confesses that God has redeemed and purchased them with his strong hand. There's law and gospel working in here. And so the seeker-driven leaders who see the book of Nehemiah as somehow a template, a pattern for vision-casting leaders to follow, they are utterly missing the whole point of this book. Um, because, and this was pointed out to me recently, I didn't, I didn't even recognize this. There's no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. Like God doesn't magically rebuild the wall. Like, yeah, that's right. And there are no visions, uh huh, and prof- and prophecies, so-called, you know, given to Nehemiah. He gave ne- the miracle was he gave Nehemiah the vision, I guess. Uh, no, it nowhere says that God gave Nehemiah a vision. It doesn't say that at all. But when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, um, the Bible, I think it's in chapter 2, talks about how he walked around the city and he just kind of inspected everything. And what the meantime allows us to do is to kind of walk around and make sure that things are ready, that we're ready. For, for example, going back to 1996, I didn't know when I was going to start the church. I didn't know how. So no sooner does he mention Nehemiah and somehow some parallel in Nehemiah's life to, well, you know, Perry Nobles, but the details of the parallel don't line up because Nehemiah didn't receive a vision. Neither did Perry Noble, by the way. So, yeah, no sooner does he talk about Nehemiah that now he's talking about himself. And who's the proof of this in the meanwhile uh, teaching, right? Well, it's Perry Noble's life, not anything taught in Scripture. But I went ahead and started reading books by people that had actually grown churches and started preparing, well, if, if we did have a church, what would it look like? And if we did have, you know, bylaws, what would they look like? And if we did have a, a membership class, what would it look like? And so when it came time to launch the church, the work had already been done. Um, I just, I, I just prepared for it while I was in the meantime. Yeah, that's great. And so for those people who have been in that preparation phase and have been in this waiting period for a long season of time, you know, how can they be sure and how can we be sure that we'll... Listen to this question. I'm going to back it up because you're going to notice something. Perry Noble doesn't answer this question. He, he, his answer has nothing to do with what she asked. Let me back it up just a smidge and uh, listen carefully. He doesn't answer the question. In that preparation phase and have been in this waiting period for a long season of time, you know, how can they be sure and how can we be sure that what we're waiting on is what the Lord really wants for us? Okay, so there's the question because notice the subjective nature of this. Supposedly, I received a vision from God and now I'm in the meanwhile, the meantime period between the, the time of the receiving of the vision and the fulfillment of it. And the question is, how can you know that that vision is really from God? Listen carefully. Perry Noble doesn't answer the question. You know, one of the most beautiful things I've discovered in following Jesus is that he makes everything clear in his time. Um, I don't, I don't love the fact that, uh, that I don't know everything immediately, but I think God does that to us. Um, or I think God does that for us to remind us that we're not in control. Um, I'll think he'll give us those in the meantime moments like, 
uh, for example, in a ministry, if your ministry is... Gr- yeah, the question is, how do you know that you're in the meantime? How do you know that vision was actually from God? You're not answering the question. Just saying, well, uh, Jesus makes things clearer over time doesn't answer the question. The question is, how do you know you actually have a vision from God? Growing, and you're reaching a lot of people, and then you hit this plateau stage where you kind of plateau or maybe even back down. It's not a time to go into freak-out mode. It's a time to uh, what I call go back to Nehemiah, inspect the walls. I mean, Yeah, just go back to men and now inspect the walls. Well, I'm not rebuilding Jerusalem. What walls am I supposed to inspect? Notice now he's allegorizing, narcissizing Nehemiah here. Uh, just go back and inspect the walls. And, and you know, God will make things clear to you that it will help you to know. Yeah, how do you know, uh, Perry, that that vision is actually from God? I, I really would like you to answer that question straight up. How do you know? How do you know you're not being deceived? I mean, take a look around. Take a look at your systems. Take a look at your personnel. Take a look at your vision. Take a look at your um, processes. And ma- and how does that help me know that I actually received a vision from God by going back and looking at my processes and my people and, and reexamining the vision, you know, you know, taking an allegorical look at the wall, you know? Make sure that you're moving forward um, in the best possible way. Um, it's It's... In the meantime, is not a time of punishment. It's time preparation. Mm-hmm. He didn't answer the question. And that doesn't surprise me because, number one, this doctrine regarding receiving a vision to cast to you know your, your leadership team and to your church is nowhere found in Scripture. So how do you know you have a vision from God? Uh, well, God will make things clear over time. That doesn't answer the question. The answer is he didn't receive it from God, and there is no way to know that you received it from God because God's word never tells you to expect to receive such a thing. If, in fact, all of this is just pure subjectivity that's being forced on the Christian church. And, oh, by the way, if he's received a vision from God, to challenge the vision is to challenge God himself. The vision-casting leaders, that's a euphemism for a different term that's actually found in the Bible, and the, and the, the term is prophet. Do you really believe that vision-casting leaders are prophets who've received visions from God and you need to get in line with and agree with their vision to make the vision happen? Not on your life. And their Bible-twisting shows it. And their inability to point to something objective that you can say, well, I know that, that it truly came from God, should clue you into something. This is not what God's Word teaches at all. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review from a church we've never reviewed a sermon from before. We'll probably be reviewing more in the future, though. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Quiet on set! Lights! Camera! Action! 
Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents. Cut! 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 We don't need lights. This is for radio. Fine. Strike the lights, people! Striking! Can we keep the camera? No. No camera. Oh. But can we at least have some action? Let me look at the budget. Yeah, we can have some action. All right, then. Places, everyone! Action! Now, oh, what is it this time? Um, we're not actually doing a Max Holiday right now. We're not? Then what are we doing? Well, we're actually promoting Mac and Trio, Inc. What on earth is that? It's a brand new company dedicated to providing quality and wholesome entertainment for all ages. That sounds interesting. Actually, Mac and Trio Inc. has already published three children's books that are available for purchase in both a digital and a hard copy format. And we even have a weekly online comic strip. Additionally, Mac and Trio Inc. is currently developing board games, card games, and even a children's television show. That sounds awesome! Where can I go to see all these great things? It's really simple. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Mac and Trio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash M-A-C-K-I-N-T-R-I-O. That's a wrap, folks! Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it already. Sermon review time. I'm going to do something I normally don't do. At the front of many of the podcasts for the sermons that we review, they tell you a little bit about the church, and oftentimes I cut that out and just get right to the, uh, the sermon itself. Today I'm not. Today I'm going to actually play it for you because I want you to hear what they say, and I want to point out what's kind of wrong with it. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Calvary Christian Church, and they are in Queensland, in uh, Mount Louisa, Queensland, in Australia. The vision casting leader presiding, his name is Pastor, no, he's not a pastor, vision casting leader James McPherson. The name of the sermon is Living Large, and this is part three in the sermon series, and it is a doozer of a twisting of God's Word, finding things uh, that are just not there, and actually literally casting aspersions on Noah, yeah, in places where Noah should not be cast, yeah, have any aspersions cast on him. We know his sin, it's recorded for us, at least one of his sins is, but yeah, what he does here is just unbelievable. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is James McPherson and his sermon entitled Living Large, and this is part three. And again, I'm going to play for you the opening intro to this uh, sermon uh, on the podcast so that you can hear what they say about this church. Here we go. 
Christian Church is one great church meeting in three locations, Townsville, Cairns and on the Sunshine Coast. At Calvary, we believe church should be real simple, to love God, care for one another and serve our world. Okay, love God, care for one another, serve our world. It should be really simple. What is that? Law. 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 Love God, love people, love your community. That's all law. What about belief in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Where's faith? Faith in Christ. So notice uh, these uh, seeker-driven churches where their you know vision you know, statement basically is love God, love people, love neighbor, whatever. That's all law. What about the gospel? We continue. For more information, visit calvarycc.org.au. We've been uh, talking in the month of January on the subject living large because I do not believe it is God's will for us to live small, contained, uh, limited lives. Hmm. So there's your lead off. I don't believe that God wants us to live small, contained and limited lives. Really? Well, what are you basing that on? Yeah. um, What? And so we're supposed to live large, really? This is Christian doctrine, and this is what it means to you know, be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that you live large. Yeah, I don't think so. The, the Bible says the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Yeah, now, real quick, that's a Bible twist. We covered this a couple of weeks ago when we took a look at the uh, larger context of John chapter 10, verse 10. It does not say the devil comes to steal, kill, steal, kill and destroy. It says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy in John chapter 10. In order to understand this, you have to look at it in context. Context begins at John chapter 9, verse 1, and continues into John chapter 10. And the thief that is being referred to there is not the devil. It's false teachers. Uh Uh-huh. And he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He went on to say, and more abundantly. In other words, God's plan is always for more. Uh, yeah, you're twisting John 10, 10. More abundantly. You gotta have, you gotta live large. You gotta have a hairy, audacious dream. You need to be prosperous and healthy. <laughs> yeah. Anybody leads off with these types of words and this kind of argument, you know for a fact you're dealing with somebody who is a twister of God's word and is not teaching you true Christian sanctification. God's plan is always that our lives would go from faith to faith, strength to strength, glory to glory. And so we've been preaching into that, just trying to create a conviction in people's hearts for 2015. We've been looking at the scripture, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples, having been crucified, raised again, and then he spent a month and a bit, 40 days, talking to various groups of the disciples, and then he's just about to ascend to heaven. And just before he ascends to heaven, he speaks these words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We talked about the fact that Jesus said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got power. Okay, now, by the way, in hermeneutics, this is what I refer to as putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. He sees the word power there, and he thinks that's the punch. And so let's take a look at what's going on in Acts chapter 1 so you can understand how he's mis 
reading this text and what he's doing with it. Because, you know, like we've shown er earlier in the program, yeah, when your premise is wrong, you're going to misread Scripture and you're not going to understand what it's saying. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice that uh, that good Dr. Luke here is talking about whom? Jesus, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria to the end of the earth. So notice that the power is to do something particular. The power is for them to be Christ's witnesses. How many things did Jesus write down in his lifetime? Nothing. The only thing we know, the only reason why we know anything about what happened in Jesus's life is because the apostles wrote it down and they wrote it down as his witnesses. So the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you power and what you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The problem here with James McPherson, he sees the word power, the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you power and he thinks that well At this point, this is some promise that God's going to give us power so that we can live large. No, the context here is that God's going to give, or Jesus is going to give the Holy Spirit who will give power to the apostles so that they can be his witnesses. And this is borne out really clearly in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. What does Peter do? He proclaims Christ and him crucified for our sins. He begins the work of being a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, to the life and teaching of Jesus, and begins to proclaim that they need to repent and to be forgiven. And he's doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Peter, quote-unquote, lived large. No, not at all. The power that was given to him was given to do a specific task, to be a witness to the life, death, teaching, in commandments of Jesus. That's what Peter did. So what uh, James McPherson has done, and he did this very clearly earlier in the sermon series, totally mangled this text, put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, saw the word power, it's dunamis, it's dynamite, man, and, and then somehow extrapolated from that that we've got to live large. No, no, not at all. The Holy Spirit is is Jesus's PR guy, and you'll see that throughout the book of Acts, that the power of the Holy Spirit is given to those who are proclaiming Christ and are his witnesses, and those who are boldly proclaiming the message of Christ and him crucified, even in the face of extreme opposition, even opposition to the point of death. So yeah, if by living large you mean, well, living large in the sense of boldly proclaiming 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and pointing people to the eyewitness testimony of what Christ has done and taught. Well, I guess you can call that living large, but that's not what uh, James McPherson is referring to. He's put the emphasis on the wrong syllable in Acts chapter 1, and now we are in week 3 of this sermon series, and he's continuing to completely botch this because he's mishandled the text from week one and now he's drawing more extrapolations and where he goes with this is just as bad as anything i've heard from the patricia king gang in your life and so it's crazy talk for a christian to be grumbling complaining moaning whinging you know talking about what they did and how they've ripped me off and jesus said when the spirit of god is in your life you are filled with Power! Uh, emphasis on the wrong syllable. Power to do what? To be witnesses is what Acts chapter 1 is talking about. I think one of the greatest things you can get a conviction of in your life is that I am filled with the power of God. That word power is the word from which we derive the word dynamite. In Greek, it's dunamis. It... Yeah, you're, you're misapplying the word. The question is, is that, yes, it means power there. Uh, the question is, what is that power given for in the context of chapter Acts chapter 1? It's given f- so that they would be witnesses to, you know, to Christ. It means dynamic, explosive power. When the- yeah, again, just because it, that's what dunamis means doesn't mean that you're properly understanding how it's being used in that sentence. The Holy Spirit is in your life. There is an energy within you that is able to take you far beyond your natural ability and far beyond anything you naturally pictured or imagined. Listen to what Jesus... Yeah, again, uh, the, the Holy Spirit's power is used for a particular thing, and that's to proclaim Christ. Why are you using the Holy Spirit's power as if somehow God the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you so that you can just do, you know, live large? That's ridiculous. God's Word doesn't teach that. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to take a hold of your life. There's going to be this energy within you, and it's going to take you not just here in Jerusalem, but to Judea, and not just Judea, but to Samaria, and not just to Samaria, but to the as far as you can imagine. To proclaim Christ, to be witnesses of Him. The power of God is going to take you. Now, this is a remarkable thing to say to a bunch of fishermen who've never moved much beyond the district in which they were born and raised. And so you can imagine their minds are being blown as Jesus starts talking to them, not just about what they're going to do here, but there. And not just here, and not just there, but everywhere. That the plan of God is big. That the plan of God for your life is much bigger than you. Yeah, this isn't about some plan of God for my life. This power is given to basically witness to Christ and what he's done. That's what this is talking about. You've put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, and you're just running like a racehorse the wrong way. Have dared to imagine. And so with those words, Jesus ascends to heaven and he's gone. And now I want you to read the next verse. It says, whilst they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angels are trying to be very polite. I love the way the angels talk. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Which translated means, get on with it! Yeah, no, actually it doesn't mean that. Because Jesus himself made it clear that in a few days they would receive that power. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. So the angels are not saying, get on with it. That's not what they're saying at all. You're not paying attention to the details of the text. Jesus has told the disciples their ministry will extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. And 15 minutes later, the disciples are standing flat-footed, having not moved even an inch Yeah, again, there's no expectation in Jesus' last words to them before he ascends for them to somehow begin advancing. They're to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. That's why Jesus says that uh, you will receive power. Not that you have already received it, but you will when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Had the Holy Spirit fallen on them yet? That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2. You're twisting God's word here, sir. And some of us are just like that. God gives us a great promise years ago, and we're wondering, when is it going to come to pass? What promises are you talking about that God supposedly gave me years ago? Oh, this is kind of like receiving a direct revelation from God, some grand vision and purpose for your life, which God's Word nowhere teaches us to expect. So you become like the little vision-casting leader of your own purpose. Uh Uh-huh. Again, this is not taught in Scripture. Well, the word of the Lord for you is this. That word that God gave you in times past will never come true. If you don't get up and get on with it. Oh, yeah, right. So the, the angels say you got to get up and get on with it. So, you know, yeah, that word, the Lord, it's not going to happen until you get up and get on with it. Yeah, God's word doesn't teach this. You are twisting God's word and putting something into the biblical text that is not there. And worse, you're using God's name and authority to teach this, which is not taught in Scripture. You're blaspheming at this point, sir. 2015 is the year to get up and get on with all that God has called you to do. And if you're not quite sure, then get up and get on, though not quite sure. But at least have a go at something. Because the truth is, while you're one of those disciples standing stationary, craning your neck upward, waiting for further instructions, other disciples are getting up and getting on with great things that God's called you to do. I want to encourage you this year, as we begin a brand new season, believe for God to do incredible things through your life. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes into your life, you'll receive power to be His witnesses. Yeah, again, emphasis on the wrong syllable. And it's not just going to be for here, but for there. Everywhere you go, you're going to see the goodness, the blessing, the ability of God. And God's word doesn't say that, especially in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is an invitation to live large. No, it's not at all. It's a historical narrative that tells us that God, that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit upon the disciples and give them power to be his witnesses. That's what it says. Nothing about living large here at all. So if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you do not need special permission to step out in faith. God says, I've given you the power. 
Now exercise it. This is an incredibly important thing. Uh, no, that's not what this text says at all. If by we as Christians have received the Holy Spirit, so go and proclaim Christ, well, then you might have something of an argument. But that's not what you're saying. You're twisting God's word here. Because there are so many Christians to whom God has invested and given great possibility who remain flat-footed, hesitant, and worried, too scared to do anything, and then they wonder why other people are moving forward and, and they're not, and then they become critical and cynical. And, 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 and the issue is that having received the, uh, the encouragement from God, then it's up to us to take steps of faith. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. No one illustrates this to me better than Noah. Uh-huh. I happen to know a few things about Noah. I've been rambling my way through the book of Genesis and that's one of the reasons why I chose the sermon to review, because what he's about to say here is utterly blasphemous. Uh, Noah, to me, is one of the most interesting figures, not just in the Bible, but in human history. And I know most of us think that we know the story of Noah, but I want to draw your attention to two episodes or, or two uh, aspects of the narrative of Noah that I think you might never have considered before. Uh, parts of the story of Noah that give us an incredible insight into one of the greatest downfalls in human history. Now think about Noah for a minute. The Bible introduces him like this. Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. No one else in Scripture receives such accolades. Uh, a just and perfect Man walking with God, not Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or Joshua. No one else is introduced in such glowing terms. I mean, when Noah is introduced, wow, this guy is going to be incredible. Now listen to the end of Noah's life, just a few chapters later. In Genesis chapter 9, we read, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk. And became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, being honorable boys, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, here's the point. The care that Shem and Japheth showed toward their father doesn't disguise their embarrassment. Think about it. The sole human being deemed worthy of saving from the flood ends up drunk, naked, barely conscious. No. Yeah, every one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament are shown to be sinners. There's only one in Scripture who is without sin, and that is Jesus. Why was Noah found righteous? Was it because he earned his righteousness? He earned a right standing before God by his good works? Nope. He found favor in God's sight. How did he do so? The same way you and I do, by trusting in the promises of God for mercy and forgiveness. Noah believed and trusted God for the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And that righteousness, his, that faith is counted to him as righteousness, the same way Abram's faith is counted as righteous, same as our faith in Christ is counted as righteousness. Read Romans 4. So here we've got an account, well, yes, but Noah is a sinner. 
Uh-huh, but listen what he says. Noah is so inebriated, his kids have to put him to bed. How is it that someone with such great potential is bought so low? <laughs> great potential. Um, yeah, well, yeah, it's too bad we all died in the flood because Noah had such great potential, but, you know, he was brought so low. Yeah, just when I say it that way, you begin to realize, wait wait a second here. He had great potential? <laughs> uh-huh. He's in the great hall of faith passage, by faith, Noah. Uh-huh. Yeah, just read it in the in the Hebrews 11. Yeah. He had such great potential. Apparently, he just amounted to a zero, and we all perished in the flood. We continue. When you read the story of Noah, it helps if you pay attention not just to the words, but to the pacing of the story. You understand that story. Uh-huh. So pay attention to the pacing. This is one of the lamest arguments I've ever heard anyone try to pass off as an exegetical argument from the story of Noah. Stories have a certain pace and speed. Uh, you would be familiar with the uh, feeling of sitting down to watch a movie at home and uh, you start watching the movie and, and after 15 minutes, nothing's happened. And you say to yourself, this is so slow. You ever watched a movie that was just slow? The sound of music comes to mind. And, uh, and then there are other movies where it's just non-stop. It's just boom, 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 boom. And you walk out of the cinema exhausted because that thing just went at a million miles an hour. Well, when you read the story of Noah paying attention to the pace of the yarn, it actually roars along at breakneck speed. God announces imminent destruction of life on earth. God orders Noah into the ark. God tells Noah who he must take, his family and two of every kind of animal. The rain begins to fall. The earth is completely flooded. Noah and those who are with him are the sole survivors. The rain stops. The water recedes. Dry land appears. And what would you expect to read next once the dry land has appeared? Well, we'd expect to read that Noah and his family leave the ark and begin the task of replenishing and repopulating the earth. So apparently the pace slows down to a crawl. Why would that be? But if you read the story, that is not what happens. If you read the story of Noah, after the water recedes, the story slows to a snail's pace where virtually nothing happens for 14 verses. Uh, really? Yeah, um, let's take a look at that. Like I said, I'm kind of familiar with this portion of Scripture. I've recently been rambling my way through this section of Scripture. If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 1. Here's what it says. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. So chapter 8 that slow part of uh, Genesis now in the flood story begins with saying that God remembered Noah and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month of the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. 
It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, and then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. So, yeah, notice, just because the ark had come to rest on Ararat doesn't mean that the waters had subsided substantially enough in order to be able to sustain life on the planet. To, for him to have gotten out of the ark at this point would have been premature. But the dove found no place to set her foot, the text says. And boy, this doesn't seem to be reading really slow. It's not like the pace just comes to a crawl. When you read it, it actually continues at the same pace that you found starting in chapter 6. But the dove found no place to set her foot. That means the waters hadn't abated yet. And she returned to Noah, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So what James McPherson is saying here about Noah and the pace of the story in Genesis chapter 8 is patently false. And you'll notice he's not actually reading the story now, is he? He's just basically making this claim, oh, the pace comes, slows way down. And then he tells the story, retells the story, but he omits very important information. There's a very specific reason why Noah didn't get out of the ark immediately, because the waters had not subsided enough yet. And the birds kind of demonstrate all that. It's not like he's sitting there just twiddling his thumbs, afraid to come out of the ark, which is what you're going to hear James McPherson say, or at least you know, kind of the way he flavors it. Instead, Noah is sending out you know birds to see if it, if he can come out yet. And finally, on the third attempt with the dove, the dove doesn't return, and then he waits just seven more days, and then God speaks to him and says, "Now come out." So that's how the text reads, but let's see what James McPherson does with this. This story has been motoring along, and then the water recedes, and the story just kind of goes into slow motion. 14 verses, pretty much nothing happens. Well, the ark comes to a stop. Noah opens a window, sends out a raven, doesn't come back. He waits a while, sends out a dove through the window, waits another week, sends out another dove. And after all of that, Noah still doesn't step out of the ark 
onto dry ground. Yeah, there's a reason why I just read it in the text. If you'd read it, you'd actually understand why. And eventually we read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, one of the strangest sentences you've, you've ever read. Listen to this. God spoke to Noah saying, here it is, go out of the ark. You, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you, birds, cattle, and every... Now, think- There's nothing strange about it. When you read the text, it's very clear that Noah waited until God told him to come out. And it's not like God was sitting there going, what are you doing, Noah? Why aren't you leaving yet? You know, why, why are you sitting around doing nothing? You're supposed to be living large, and you're not. That's not, you know, the text doesn't read that way. You are literally mangling this text. Think about it. Have you ever been on a holiday with a family where it's rained and rained and rained, and you've been stuck inside with family, with kids, maybe with pets, when the rain stopped? Noah wasn't on holiday. The whole world had just been destroyed by the flood. You don't need to be told to get out of the house. You are breaking through walls to get out. You just want space. The whole world had just been destroyed in a cataclysm that literally caused water to cover the entire face of the earth. And you're comparing it to a holiday. And casting aspersions on Noah as if the, the logical thing, I mean, he'd been on holiday inside the ark. And I mean, you know, now that the rain has stopped, don't you think you want to come climbing out really quick? Yeah, the issue was is that after the whole world is destroyed by a flood, you got to wait for the water to subside enough in order to be able to make a living. You know, plant you know, some you know, seeds so that you can have a crop and you know, things like that. If you get out too soon and the waters haven't abated yet, uh, you're going to end up dead like everybody else. Noah has been cooped up in this boat for months with family so close. Some of you can remember Christmas. And if the family don't kill you, the animals, I mean, it was cute at first. But now the noise, the incessant noise, and we've not even begun to talk about the smell. Which makes me rather curious when I read, God said to Noah, go out of the ark. You, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that you may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Here's an amazing, so Noah went out. Only when God himself tells Noah to leave the ark does Noah open the door and step out onto dry land. As if somehow God expected him to do otherwise. Think about it. The world has been devastated and Noah is hesitating about doing anything concerning it. The earth lies in ruins and Noah waits for an invitation before he starts to fix it. As if somehow he's sinning by doing this. He's waiting so that they don't leave prematurely. Who was the one who put them in the ark and closed the door? It was God himself. Here's a thought. When it comes to rebuilding a shattered world, you do not need to wait for permission. When it comes to putting things right, you don't waste time wondering whether or not it's God's will for you to start putting things right. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is, I mean, just satanically blasphemous. 
When it comes to fixing a mess, you don't need a special word from God or an appearance from an angel on your bed. The rain has stopped. Dry land has appeared. And Noah is sitting on his blessed assurance, waiting for further instructions. Now, some of you are troubled because you're thinking we shouldn't do anything without a word from God. I'm not saying we don't need a word from God, but I'm saying you don't need to wait for a word for every single thing before you do anything. If you want to live a large life. I I read about a man who God spoke to concerning his future destiny, and God said, I'm going to use you to feed the poor and to bring help to those who are down and destitute. And uh, years had gone by, and this man had never done anything. In fact, he hadn't even left his house. And someone said to him, why haven't you got on with, with all that God called you? He gave you this great vision. He, he said, well, I want to, but, but there's a problem. He, his friend said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, God's not told me what to wear. At which point a voice boomed from heaven saying, I'm your heavenly father, not your mother. <laughs> God told Noah before the flood that the covenant he made with Adam and Eve would now be with Noah and with his family. In other words, God had told Adam and Eve, I want you to fill and subdue the earth, have dominion. God told that to Adam and Eve. God told Noah, I'm going to flood the earth and the covenant I made with Adam and Eve, I am now making with you. So once the rain stops, does Noah really need to be told to exit the ark? Perhaps Noah believed that since God had told him, really the whole point of sending out the birds is that the water hadn't abated yet. I just read the text. If you had just read this to the people at your church, you wouldn't be able to say the things you're saying. For him to enter the ark, he couldn't leave until God had given the order to exit the ark. And so the rain stopped, the water receded, the ground appeared, and heaven waited and waited and waited. And Noah is waiting and waiting. Until eventually, if you read the story properly, you've got to read it with exasperation when you quote God saying, and God said, Noah, get out of the ark. Really, which biblical scholars and in their commentaries note the fact that the right way to read this is with exasperation? I don't know of any. And I've been reading quite a few commentaries on the book of Genesis. No one that I have read that can read the the biblical text in Hebrew, has looked at it scholarly, understands the themes that are going on, has ever cast aspersions on Noah as if he was somehow doing something wrong and God was saying, why are you waiting in the ark? Come on out. What are you waiting for? Nobody has ever said that. You're the first person I've ever heard make such a ridiculous claim. Noah was waiting for another command instead of exercising the initiative God had given him and proactively getting on with the call to be an agent for healing and wholeness in a bruised and broken world. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. An agent for healing and wholeness in a bruised and broken world? The whole world had been destroyed. What are you talking about? This year, if you see a need, meet it. If you see a hole, fill it. If you find a gap, stand in it. On the other side of that ark door is a brand new world waiting for Noah to subdue and have dominion over. And he's sitting, waiting, flat-footed, tentative, unsure, nervous, hesitant, scared to make a move. And that is some of us. 
On the other side of that door, there are incredible possibilities for your life this year. On the other side of that decision, there are incredible blessings and graces from God. God is going to open up such incredible... And on the inside of that door is a wolf in sheep's clothing who is twisting God's word and teaching it falsely. ...things for your life, and we sit waiting, wondering whether or not we should. You know, uh, there are so many nervous, hesitant, anxious Christians believing great things, but the truth is they've been believing and been talking about them for years, but they're too hesitant and nervous to do anything. In 2007, when Sam and I took on leadership of the church here, I, I pretty much loved everything about the church, but there are a couple of things that really annoyed me. Can I talk about one of them? I just want to get it off my chest this morning. One of the things that really annoyed me was the musos. Because... Um, Every time, Michelle Fredericks, I would finish a message and I was coming to the conclusion. So, so you're coming to the pointy end of your sermon and, uh, and, and I was in a flow. And I've got this beautiful rhythm happening. My voice has got this wonderful cadence and then I'd have to break flow to invite the musicians to join me on stage. You'd have heard preachers say, if the musicians could join us on stage, please. It's the worst thing for a preacher because you're in the middle of, of trying to bring this thing to a head and then you've got to stop to ask the musicians if they would mind joining us on stage. And so Yeah, that's kind of like a, an admission that the whole point of the musicians is a, an emotional manipulation technique. So, uh, you know, I, I began to just drop hints. And so I would say, in conclusion, and then I would look over at Michelle and the team. And they would look back at me smiling. <laughs> and, uh, and so eventually I caught up with Michelle and I said, I said, what's the deal? Like, what do I have to do to get you guys to realize he's wrapping up the sermon? Now would be a good time for that mood music. <laughs> you know that mood music? That even if I didn't preach good, the music gets you in the mood to respond to God. And... Uh, and that's what I've been saying for years. That it, when I say cue sappy music, what do I say? That's an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now here, falling on the auditorium, ready to make you know work with people as they make decisions and commitments and things like that. Thanks, James McPherson, for you know, validating and vindicating me there. I said, "What do I have to do to get you guys to?" And she said, well, no, it's not that we don't realize. It's, it's just that we're a bit, like, nervous that if we get up at the wrong time and start playing, don't get up now, by the way, um, <laughs> that you'll get really cranky and we just don't want to get told off. So we'd rather wait until you say, and then we know it's... And I remember one of the first discussions we ever had, I said, Michelle, here's how life is going to work from now on. I would rather you make a decision, and, and it's not probably the right decision we talk about it later and have a learning opportunity <laughs> then you never make a decision for fear of getting it wrong and getting in trouble look I promise you if you make a decision in good faith even if it's the wrong decision I'm not going to slam you for it 
If you made a decision in good faith and you honestly thought that was the best way to help and it turned out to be not the best way, then we'll just talk about it later and we'll learn from it. But I promise you, have a go. I, I'm not going to, to slam you. The, the truth is that a lot of people picture God as this despotic ruler who barks orders for us to jump. And so you stand nervously, tentatively, anxiously waiting, scared that if he yells jump and you don't, you're going to get slammed. And, and if you jump when he didn't yell jump, you're going to get slammed as well. And and so consequently, we get people who've got great ability and great potential standing flat-footed, nervous, hesitant, anxious, kind of fearful about the future. A lot of Christians imagine the will of God as like a tightrope. Well, I, I just don't want to step outside the will of God, Pastor James. I just, well, I'm not sure if I should go to Bible college because I'm not exactly sure God has to go. I kind of feel it, but I, he hasn't really like totally said, no, I just don't want to fall off the will of God. And I think we get that idea from something Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 13, where Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction and many through it, but small is the gate. And narrow the road that leads to life. You've heard that scripture, right? Jesus said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And that's true. Because there is only one gate by which anyone can enter into life, and that's the gate of Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation except through the person of Jesus Christ. But once you've entered through that gate into life, what you find is that the road before you opens up incredibly. When Jesus says, narrow is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, he's talking about getting into salvation. But once you've come into life, you find that the opportunities before you, the possibility, the potential opens up incredibly wide. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's all about having potential and opportunities once you say yes to Jesus. Yeah, that, this is not what Christian sanctification is about at all. And he's not using any biblical text to actually teach this. And the text that he's handled so far, he has botched badly. And so you've got Christians who come through the narrow gate, that is Jesus Christ, the only way by which men can be saved. And so we come through that narrow gate, and then they're still walking along like this when they're actually on like an eight-lane highway designed especially for them. And instead, oh, so once you've passed through the narrow gate, you're back on the broad highway. Yeah, that's not how that biblical metaphor works. Instead of motoring into their destiny, that they're tentative, hesitant, scared, wondering what if I take a wrong step? And that's not the way that you live a large life. And this has nothing to do with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, or the story of Noah in Genesis 8. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verse 15. He says to the disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I'm calling you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. This is an incredible statement of Jesus. He says to the disciples, listen, I'm not going to call you servants. Well, how does a servant operate? Well, a servant stands and you wait until the boss gives you a command, and then you snap to it, you run, you do it, then you come back and you wait in position for the next command. And Jesus says, I've got bigger plans for you than that. That is not the kind of existence I want you to live. I'm not calling you servants. That's not exactly the gist of what Jesus is getting at there. 
I'm calling you friends, which is a whole different way of seeing the way that we live before. Yeah, it has nothing to do with living large. For the Lord. I want to come back to that verse, but before we do, um, I want to just note one more thing about the story of Noah, which I think is a little bit strange. Have you ever noticed? Yeah, so far all of your observations about Noah have been absolutely spurious. Just that through the entire episode, Noah never speaks. You ever notice that? Not even a word. What does Noah say when God informs him the whole world is going to perish? Noah says, nothing. What does Noah say when the rain begins to fall and people outside the ark are screaming? I tell you what Noah says, nothing. Noah is not recorded as saying a single word throughout the entire disaster. Instead, we read four times of Noah's silent obedience. Genesis 6 verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Genesis 7 verse 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Genesis 7 verse 9, two by two they went into the ark, uh, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Genesis 7 verse 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. So Noah is a model of obedience. But if you want to live large, there's a place beyond mere obedience to a command. And that is responsibility to a call. Yeah, um, that's just ridiculous. You're, you're somehow trying to make Noah out to be a bad guy, that somehow, yeah, well, he was obedient. Yet, <clears throat> Hebrews 11, like I've referenced it before, and I'm going to reference another passage too. Here's what it says. And um, let's see, verse 7, by faith, Noah, notice what it says, by faith, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Yeah, that's what Scripture says about Noah. First, uh, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Um, <clears throat> Noah was a herald of righteousness, is what Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says. Although we don't have any of his sermons recorded, we know that he was a herald and a preacher of righteousness. So notice he's somehow trying to make it sound like Noah, you know, although he's recorded in scripture, God really wasn't all that happy with him because, you know, it it's he sat there and in the ark and God had to tell him to come out and was really frustrated with him and all this kind of stuff. None of this is said anywhere in scripture. I mean, literally, James McPherson is reading this into the text and by doing so, He's making Noah, he's basically taking away what God says about Noah. Nowhere do we read any displeasure on the part of God as it pertains to Noah at all. Instead, he's in the great hall of faith passage. We know that he was a herald of righteousness. And he did exactly what the Lord did. And the reason why he did it is not because he's an example of obedience. It's because he believed God by faith. That's what Hebrews eleven seven says. 
We think the life of faith is about being obedient to the voice of God. And it is, but it's more than that. Noah was obedient, but he wasn't responsible. He'd been commanded to save. Yeah, so he was irresponsible. Save creation in the ark, but he was called to repopulate and to replenish the earth. And, so- and did he fail at that? I'd just like to know. Did he fail at doing that? So Noah did what he was commanded But he never dared to go beyond the implicit instruction to fulfill what he'd been called to do. Really, then how are we all here? Because nowhere in Scripture does it say any of this about Noah. You're finding stuff about Noah that ain't nobody ever found. In other words, Noah did what he was told, but no more. And you and I have all got children just like that. I've lost time. I lost count of the number of times that my kids have walked past something just sitting on the ground in our house. Just walked straight past it. I say, Oi, pick it up and put it away. And you know what they do? They obey. And you know what? As a dad, I'm not completely satisfied with that. You say, But they obeyed. And I know obedience is good, but I want them to move beyond obedience. Not leaving obedience completely behind, but I want them to add something to obedience. It's called responsibility. It's what- So if this doctrine of responsibility beyond obedience is so important, why is it not taught in Scripture clearly so that we can understand it, believe it, and, you know, do it? Where is this doctrine of responsibility laid out in clear and unambiguous terms, in context? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, by the way, let's uh, let's take a look at something that Jesus said that I find rather fascinating. <clears throat> Luke chapter 17, verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, notice that Jesus doesn't sit there and say, and so therefore, do more than what you're told to do uh, so that you can embrace the doctrine of responsibility and therefore you can say that you're truly a worthy servant. That's not what the rest of the text says. Wonderful that when I say you pick it up, but what's more wonderful as a parent is when I don't say you see it and using your initiative think, you know what, I reckon my father would want me to do something about that. He hasn't told me to pick it up, but I just know in the grand plan of what my father wants for this house, it should probably be picked up. How many of you know that day will never come? Listen to the words of Jesus again. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. And the spirit of God is going to fill you and he'll lead you into all truth. And a lot of people live small lives because they mistakenly believe that obedience is the highest virtue. But a large life goes beyond obedience to something more. It's called a large life. Again, where in Scripture are we called to have a large life? I'm not familiar with that passage of Scripture. It's not in there. 
called responsibility. You know, in the Bible, the law of Moses contains 613 commands. Now, you would think that if God gives the Israelites 613 commands, there would be a word in Hebrew that means obey. And yet there is no Hebrew word that means obey. The closest we... Now, before you think he's pulling a fast one like Perry Noble, he actually has a point here. Uh, the word Shema, which is tr- translated as obedience, it's not quite the, doesn't quite capture what's going on with that word. We get to it as a word Shema, which translated literally means to listen, to hear, to understand, to internalize and respond. The word is so unique that when the Bible was translated into English, there was no equivalent. So the writers of the King James Version invented an English word, hearken. And that was the closest word they could get to this word Shema, which is sometimes translated now obey. So, so when you read scripture, you find that God commands us to obey him, but you'd be wrong if you thought of it as a despotic God commanding nothing more than mindless submission to his will. As Yeah, that's absolutely true. And this is why true fear, love and trust in God is necessary. Faith in Christ is necessary. Because that is what, ha- what determines our right standing before God. We are saved by grace through faith. We are reconciled to the Father by grace through faith as a gift. And then we're able to do our Father's will, which is revealed in the moral law. And, you know, but the, the call is for true fear, true love, true trust in God, which we cannot muster in and of ourselves. That has to be given to us as Christ regenerates us. Yes, I I understand where he's going with this, but what he's doing here is not exactly what I just said. In fact, he's he's taking this in a different direction altogether. As if we were robots or machines. God, as our Father, actually wants us to be mature, deliberative, to do his will because we understand what it is he's trying to accomplish. He seeks from us something... Yeah, no, that's not exactly right. ...greater than blind obedience, and that is responsibility. Yet, no, again, where is this great doctrine of responsibility laid out? Answer, nowhere in Scripture. He's inventing his own theology, his own definition of sanctification, his own doctrine called the doctrine of responsibility. He's just literally rolling his own, well, growing his own theology and smoking it. Compare Noah for just a moment with another hero of the faith. Abraham. When God tells Abraham that the city of Sodom is to be destroyed, what does Abraham do? Have a look at it, Genesis chapter 18. Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Listen to what God replies. Okay. If I find 50 righteous within the city, I'll spare the place for their sakes. Now, this raises an interesting possibility. What if God flooded the earth, but it was Abraham rather than Noah that had been there at the time? Abraham might have... So we're going to do speculation now. ...might have saved the whole world. 
Noah said nothing. Oh, I see. So if it had been Abraham rather than Noah, Abraham would have been able to negotiate with God and God would have spared the whole world. Can I point something out here? Sodom and Gomorrah, were they spared? No. God rained down sulfur and brimstone on them from heaven and wiped them off the face of the earth. The uh, the only people who escaped were Lot and his family, and his, even his wife didn't escape because she disobeyed God and turned and looked back. So, um, yeah, we've got a huge problem here. You know, the claim to make the claim that if it had been Abraham rather than Noah, then the whole world had been spared. Well, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't actually spared, was it? Let me back this up just a smidge so that you can hear that again. Okay, if I find 50 righteous within the city, I'll spare the place for their sakes. Now, this raises an interesting possibility. What if God flooded the earth, but it was Abraham rather than Noah that had been there at the time? Abraham might have saved the whole world. Noah said nothing. This is unbelievable. This is just terrible. When the world is about to be flooded, Abraham, when a city is about to be destroyed, starts dialoguing, talking with God. Abraham might have failed, but it seems from reading the story, Noah didn't even try. Yet 2 Peter chapter 2 says that Noah was a herald, a preacher of righteousness. He had many of wor- many words to say. He called men to repent and to be forgiven, to turn from their iniquity and their sinfulness, and to be forgiven by God. That's what being a preacher and herald of righteousness means. Man, I, it, again, it, it just I'm incensed that this man would literally tarnish the good name of Noah. This is an assassination. This is what it means to slander and to lie about somebody. And at this point, the person being slandered is one of the greatest patriarchs that the Bible and our world have ever seen. A man who found favor in God's sight and was righteous before God by faith. Noah's end, drunk, disheveled, and debased, tells us that if you save yourself whilst doing nothing to save the world, you don't even save yourself. So did Noah go to hell? No. He did not. The story suggests that Noah couldn't live with the guilt. The difference. Michelle, I'm bringing the message to a conclusion at this point. (laughs) (laughs) That's really wrecked my flow now. The difference between Noah and Abraham is summarized. I want you to see this. This is incredibly small. Yeah, this is what we call a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Just so you know, I'm kind of preparing you for what he's going to say here because he really is trying to draw some major distinction between Noah and Abraham, and yet both are accounted righteous before God by faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Weird, huh? And hugely profound. The difference between Noah and Abraham is summarized by the two phrases that God uses to describe his unique relationship with each. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is what we read of Noah. It says, Noah walked with God. How many of you think that's pretty good? 
I mean, and Enoch walked with God too. When I first read that, I thought, I'd love someone to say that about James walked with God. This, this is a pretty great commendation, right? Till I read what God says about his unique relationship with Abraham. Listen to what the Bible says about Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared and said to him, I am... Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience to uh, work with people as they make decisions and commit themselves to things. I am almighty God walk before me. You see the difference? The Bible says that Noah walked with God and that Abraham walked before God. Yeah, and qualitatively, there is no difference between the two. In fact, Enoch walked with God, and he didn't even experience death. So um, this walk before me, walk, uh, you know, walk with me kind of thing, this is a difference that makes no difference, which means there's no difference at all. I mean, what this guy has done, I mean, literally, this is like a hit piece against Noah. And the things he's said about him are just blasphemous and slanderous and wrong, including this little distinction. It's subtle, but it's incredibly significant. You say to a child, walk with me. Stand right there. Hold my hand. No, no, come back here. Stand here. That's what you say to a child. You say to someone with no maturity, walk with me. My boys now are nine years old, and regularly, especially if we're walking through Brisbane or someplace like that, I'll say, walk with me. If when they're 30, I'm still saying, walk with me. Again, this is not, this is not how the Hebrew language works. Uh, Genesis 5, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Yeah, Enoch is one of two men who did not experience physical death. Enoch and Elijah. Mm -hmm. And it says of Enoch that he walked with God. Not before God, but walked with God. Yeah, this little distinction that uh, that James McPherson is making here is not a correct distinction. And the, his, the way he's telling this story is, again, just so wrong. I mean, I, th- this is a crime, what we're listening to. This is spiritual malpractice of the highest order. How many of you know, Houston, we have a problem? As a father, it would grieve me. When my boys are 30, if I'm still saying to them, walk with me, walk with me. My goal, my intention for my boys is that they would not just do what I say, but they would understand my heart. And when they understand my heart, then I don't have to say. And that's exactly what it means to walk with God. Say to them, walk with me. I can empower them to walk before me because they understand my heart. They understand my intentions. They understand what I'm trying to accomplish. So when Jesus says to the disciples, I don't anymore call you servants. Walk with me. I call you friends. Go on ahead of me because you understand the Father's business and what I intend to accomplish. When it comes to rebuilding the ruins of catastrophe, 
You don't wait for permission. You take the risk and you walk ahead. Faith is more than obedience. It's the courage to create, to step out, to have a go. And which biblical passage says this? Again, not one of them. And that's the kind of spirit I want to see in our church. A spirit based upon a doctrine you invented. That's not actually what God's word says. Got it. Calvary Church, we don't have this tentative, nervous, hesitant, fearing to get it wrong spirit. And we certainly don't always get it right. But I refuse to allow the fear of failure to cause us to back away from the possibility of greatness. I refuse to allow that the worry of of failure and mistakes to keep us cordoned off from the great destiny and plan and purpose that God has for our lives. Let's be those who understand what the will of God is and see ourselves not simply as servants waiting for the next command, but as stewards of the plan and the purpose of God on planet Earth. So we're not those waiting for an invitation to do what God's already said to do. We're not those waiting for a word for the bleeding obvious. If you see God as some despotic ruler barking orders, you'll see yourself as a servant and you'll see life as incredibly precarious. But instead, if you see God as your loving heavenly father, you'll see yourself as a son or a daughter. And you'll see life as being filled with possibilities and potential. In 2015, you and I are absolutely called to live a large, expansive life. No, we're not. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that. But if you have the wrong image of God, which you clearly do, sir, despite his power and presence within you, You live a hesitant, nervous, anxious life far back from all that God intended. I want you to see God not as a despotic ruler, but as a loving father. Who begins by saying, walk with me. But wants to bring us to a point where we increasingly understand his heart, his intentions, not just his commands, but the call. So that he can empower us and say, walk before me. Wow. Again, I've run out of adjectives that describe the evil that we're listening to. And you and I, righteous people, bold as a lion, can take great steps of faith into the unknown, but believing God's with us and with us to bless. Let's get up and get going. He's filled us with his spirit. We are not those who stand next craning, waiting to see what's happened next. We are so confident of what God's put in us that now we're getting on with the job in Jesus' name. And by throwing Jesus' name at the end of that false teaching, he has blasphemed the holy name of the Messiah in God's Christ. Unbelievable. That, yeah, like I said, this guy will probably be reviewed again on this program because he has no clue, no clue whatsoever what God's Word really says or how to rightly handle a biblical text. Did you hear any gospel in that, by the way? 
And he, um, yeah, he came really close to preaching the gospel, but he didn't actually do it. Wow. 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 What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>